good to see everyone here today. Must be uh, everybody getting back from vacation at the same time, <laughs> because there's more people here today than has been for a little while. How many of you people have a Bible with you today? <clears throat> now, I don't want you to raise your hands to this one, but how many people read it each week? Think about that. We all have a Bible here when we come to church. We all have a Bible in our homes, but how many times do we really open it during the week and study it? That's probably the uh, main charge I have today and what we're going to be talking about, because we need to open that and find out what's in the Bible, what God has for us. And you know, the more and more I study, the more I find uh, principles and different things that are really neat in the Bible, how they tie together and how the Old Testament sets the stage and the New Testament takes over and explains uh, how it's going to happen again in the same way, or uh, repetition and enlargement, how God does things when he uh, influenced the writing of the Bible. So we're going to go over some of the principles today. Some of you may know these, we've heard them before, but it just, I think, helps us to reinforce in our mind uh, how God wrote the Bible and how it's for our... um, improvement for our knowledge so that we can be warned uh, of the things that are coming. One of the things in being interested, especially in Daniel and Revelation, is how God uses stories in the Bible, just things that are happening that he has uh, had recorded in the Old Testament, how they're important in teaching other lessons of what's going to happen in the future. And sometimes we say, okay, in fact, I've had this said to me many times, the Bible is just a book of old stories. You know, you read the old story and you're done with it and you never have to worry about it again. But these old stories are prophetic in certain senses and they tell you what's going to happen in other cases too. So the first principle I want to go through a little bit today is how God uses stories to tell things that are going to happen in the future. And... I'm going to go through especially the three or four chapters in Daniel, just at the story chapters. What happens in chapter 1 in Daniel? Remember, Babylon comes, they take over Israel, the city is destroyed, the sanctuary especially is is, uh, destroyed and knocked over, and they're taken all captive to Babylon. And so we say, okay, that's an interesting story. But it's interesting that the New Testament also talks about Babylon, doesn't it? And it's not literal Babylon anymore. It has more to do with spiritual details and spiritual teachings and so on. And so here we have the set story in Daniel of what happened to literal Babylon taking over literal Israel, destroying the literal sanctuary. But then... When you go over to Daniel 7, you'll find out that the power in Daniel 7 basically does the same thing in a spiritual sense. It talks about the little horn. We know that that's after Christ, so that's more New Testament times. And it also tries to take over this Babylon, take over God's people. And what does it do? In chapter 7, it takes away God's law which is part of the sanctuary. Remember the Old Testament sanctuary service? 
What, what two things was the Old Testament sanctuary service based on? It was based on the law of God, which is in the ark, in the most holy place, and it was based on the service that they went through every day for the forgiveness of sins, right? So that was done away with when literal Babylon took over literal Israel. But now we come to chapter 7 of spiritual Babylon, the New Testament times, and in chapter 7 it said the little horn tries to take away God's law, doesn't it, in relation to time. And in chapter 8 it says it then tries to take away the sanctuary service and what is meant by the sanctuary service. That's the forgiveness of sins. It says he can forgive sins. So you can see how chapter 1, a literal story, but it has meaning for what's going to happen later on with New Testament Babylon. How about uh, the story in chapter um, 3? Remember that story of the big image that was set up? King Nebuchadnezzar set this big image up, and he uh, wanted to find out who was going to bow down to this image. And if we look at, at history and what's been found, we find out that just a little bit before this, there was a big coup. And so the king wants to know who's going to be loyal to him. So he sets up this image, and they're supposed to worship it. And then, of course, the three Hebrews don't worship it, and what happens to them? Okay, they're sentenced to death. And it all has to do with a law of God, Right? because they said we can't worship that image. We are told we can't worship anybody but God. And so they have a death decree set on them. And we say, oh, that's a neat story, and it's really cool how they were delivered and everything. But when you go over to um, Revelation, you will find that Revelation 13 has that same story, but in a different spiritual context. It says in Revelation 13 that there will be an image to the beast to set up, right? And what are we supposed to do? It says we are supposed to worship that image. And what does it say in the same chapter? If you don't, that there will be a death decree set up. And it all has to do about a law of God. Because in that context, it will be the Sabbath commandment. What about the story in Daniel 5? A simple little story about the overthrow of Babylon. Remember the big feast they were having? And uh, Babylon thinks it is impregnable and can never be thrown over. And uh, it's taken the things of God's sanctuary and misused them. And then God does something very interesting. He has Cyrus dry up the water of the river so that they can walk in and overthrow the town. Uh, And... um, Cyrus becomes the leading conqueror to overthrow Babylon. Now, is there anything like that in the other parts of the Bible? If you think about over in Revelation Revelation 18, it talks about how Babylon thinks it's impregnable. Nobody can overthrow it. And uh, it's taken the things of God's sanctuary, as as we've already mentioned, and has misused them. Not only the... Uh, forgiveness of sins and how only God can do that has misused that, but it's also misused God's law in trying to do away with it. But God has an answer just like he did in Old Testament times. What happened? It says in Revelation 16, 12, 
that God will cause the waters, quotes, and we know in predictive prophecy, what are waters? Peoples and nations. God will dry up the waters, supporting or protecting Babylon. So Babylon in the end times no longer has the support of everybody. And so what happens when a system no longer has the support of people? It falls. And so uh, God uses these stories not only to tell us how he saved his people and protected his people in the Old Testament times, but as models of something that's going to happen later on. And you don't know that unless you read the Bible and start comparing different things. What about the story of Daniel 6? Remember, the princes were a little tiffed that Daniel was made the number one king in the new empire, the Medo-Persian empire. And so they go to the king and they say, what? Let's make a new law that nobody can worship in any other way other than you set up, and that's to worship you. And so Daniel, hearing the new law, is he going to be intimidated by a law saying something about worship, that you have to do it in a different way? No, he goes out and he worships the way he knows he should and he's always done from the very beginning. And what happened? There was a death decree set on him for doing that, right? And so he was thrown in the den of lions. And did God deliver him? We know the story. God delivered him. But what about over in the New Testament? Is there going to be a time when worship is going to be prescribed in a certain way? And is it going to be against God's law? Yes, it is. And as a result of that, what's going to happen? There will be a death decree set up. And, just like the story, will God come at that very time and deliver his people? He will. So, it's interesting as we study, we see parallels, we see lessons that God is trying to teach us in each of the simple stories, just like Judy was telling a simple story here today, but it had larger ramifications and consequences, didn't it? And that's how God does when he writes his Bible. Now, another part of uh, principles that are very interesting in the Bible are things that God uses and names in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, they have a little different connotation, more spiritual connotations, and especially when it comes to Israel. And I think we're going to talk about this in just a minute, uh, so I'm going to just wait on that for a minute, but the last part of the sermon is going to be um, how God uses the Bible to predict things that are going to happen. What was the scripture reading that was read today by Danny? God doesn't do anything in history that's major that affects his people, but that he tells about beforehand. He warns us so that we know what's coming. And so this has something to do with what we're going to talk about right now with that, and we'll talk about that later. But I'm going to read a few things in a book by Lewis Weir about what God does in the way of Old Testament, New Testament parallelisms and things to study when you're studying your Bible. It talks about Adam. In Genesis, doesn't it? How he's the father of the human race. But then it talks in the New Testament about 
the second Adam, doesn't it? And it equates that to Christ and how he is really the father of the human race. talks about Eve in the Old Testament as Adam's wife. But then in the New Testament, it talks about what? Being, uh, being Christ's wife. The church. So there's a parallel between Adam and Eve and Christ and the church. Because remember, the church in prophecy is always talked about as a woman. Uh, there are many, many other circumstances. Circumcision in the Old Testament. It was a sign that you were God's people, wasn't it? You were an Israelite. In the New Testament, we're dedicated to God by baptism. Not by circumcision, but it calls it circumcision of the heart. And so there's a parallel there that we have to learn from. Uh, It talks about deliverance from Egypt. Whole chapters about Israel coming out of Egypt. In the New Testament, it's basically talking about deliverance from the same type of bondage, except it's spiritual bondage. It's sin and how God is delivering us from that kind of bondage. It talks about manna in the Old Testament. And what's manna in the New Testament? It's Christ. He is the bread of life. So just as they ate of the manna in the Old Testament, we can eat of the manna in the New Testament times and get life. One of the things that people have forgotten today, and in fact I think God has even warned us about this, and we'll talk about it in a minute. But when he talks about Israel, he talks about Israel being priests. He talks about the Old Testament temple and so on. In the New Testament, who does he say those same things about? The church. He calls the church Israel. He calls the church my people. Uh, In fact, if we want to go to um, uh, Peter, 1 Peter 2.9, He says over and over again the same phrases that in Exodus 19 he called Old Testament Israel. My people, a peculiar people, a holy nation, all those things that he used for uh, for Israel, literal Israel, Peter now applies to the New Testament church. And there's a problem with that because in today's Christian society, they have forgotten that God uses the things of the Old Testament literal things, to talk about spiritual things in the New Testament, they're still thinking it means literal things. And so they're looking for Israel to become great again. They're looking for the temple to be rebuilt. Not understanding the biblical principle that the Old Testament literal things now have spiritual meanings in the New Testament. And I could go on and on. The Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. In New Testament times, According to Daniel, it's talking about the coming of the judgment and how the judgment starts. Uh, one last one, the scapegoat. Remember in the sanctuary service at the Day of Atonement, it talks about the scapegoat being led out into a wilderness so he could live there all by himself. What about in the New Testament? Is there any correlation? Satan in Revelation 20, he's led out and chained actually in the wilderness as a, a result of having him cause sin in the world and his responsibility for the sin that he has caused. There are so many, as we study through God's word, that um, 
we take Old Testament examples and have New Testament applications. Jezebel, famous Old Testament queen. You know, I've never heard of a girl named Jezebel. Have you? There may be one, but I've never heard of a parent saying, you know, I really want to name my little girl Jezebel. And yet in Revelation, it uses that story of Jezebel in a way of what's going to happen at the end of time. So as we study our Bibles, let's really go through and pick out these things that God has for us, these little nuggets, and learn how they apply to us. Now the third principle I want to talk to a little bit about is how God uses the principle of enlargement, repetition, and enlargement. And he does this especially in many of the, of the uh, prophetic chapters, Daniel and Revelation. Um, to get a point across and to open up things gradually to us. Um, I want to have you open your Bibles with me to Isaiah 28. There's a verse here that shows how God wants us to learn and how he has written things for us to learn. It's Isaiah 28, and we're going to read um, verse 9 and 10. And we'll talk about this at the end. Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. In other words, he really wants to teach us knowledge after we've gotten the very basic things, the milk, but then he wants to teach us. And how is he going to teach us as we grow along? Is the next verse. From precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That's how God wants to teach us. And that's how he does it, especially as you study through some of the prophecies like in Daniel. And I want to just give an example real quick so that we can see what he's trying to do. Uh, we've had a Bible study on Daniel where some of you have been coming to, and we've gone over some of these things. If you read through Daniel 2, there are seven major steps in Daniel 2. Kingdom 1, Kingdom 2, Kingdom 3, Kingdom 4, division of Kingdom 4, some kind of a judgment process because, remember, the stone comes and hits the statue and grinds it all up. And then the seventh step, which is the stone growing large, which is God's kingdom. And we know when that's going to be, after Christ comes. doesn't really say much about that sixth step, does it? The rock hitting the statue. It just kind of mentions it, and we kind of wonder what it's about. But then in chapter 7, God goes over the same thing again, but he starts opening it up to us a little more. You have kingdom 1, you have kingdom 2, kingdom 3, kingdom 4, division of kingdom 4, and then suddenly in that step six, what does he have? He has the books are opened in heaven and you see God and the Father and the angels and everybody else sitting at a judgment. And that chapter makes it very clear that that judgment is before the second coming. So we say, okay, now we understand the stone hitting the statue and grinding it up was a picture of God's judgment on the world. But it doesn't say anything else about it, so what do we know? Well, then you go to chapter 8. And there's the same steps again. He kind of skips over step one because of a reason which we can't get into now. But then you have 
the second kingdom, the third kingdom, the fourth kingdom, the division of the fourth kingdom, and then what's the next step? Is the 2300 days. So he then tells us when the judgment is going to be. He's introduced the judgment. He's pictured it as the book's being opened in heaven. Now he says it's going to happen at the end of the 2300 days. So you see how he's slowly been bringing us along to understand things. But we still don't know what it's going to be because he didn't tell us the beginning date. And that's what he does in chapter 9. He tells us the beginning date because it's tied in with the beginning date of the 490 years. So all the way along, God has been giving it to us little by little by little so that we can understand. You know, when we're in first grade, how much do we get? Chris says, just a little bit. And that's right. We just learn basics, don't we, in first grade? We learn that there's a little number, and that means something. You know, when I do this, it means one. And when I mean that, it means two. And you start learning letters and trying to put them together in very simple words. God does the same thing with the Bible as we study it. He'll have some very simple things that we learn fairly quickly. But then he builds on that. And he gets deeper and deeper and deeper and starts correlating things. You start seeing an organizational pattern as you study certain things. And those are the things that we need to be looking at and learning when we study the Bible, not just reading a chapter and saying, okay, I read a chapter today, I'm done, then I can put it away. Start thinking about what it really means to us. What about parables? Those are things that God, and even in the Old Testament, there are parables given. What do they mean? Are they just stories that God liked to tell, you know, like Judy's story here, just to keep kids entertained for five minutes so they don't get too rambunctious? I want to go to a story, and I want to show you how God used things from the Old Testament in this story, and that the people he told the story to should have really gotten the story and known exactly what the meaning was. In fact, they finally did. And let's turn to Matthew 21. Matthew 21 is an interesting parable that Christ tells to the Pharisees. And um, as we find out at the end of the chapter, the Pharisees don't like this lesson very much. Okay, I'm going to read the parable real quickly if you want to read it with me. Here another parable. There was a certain householder who planted a vineyard and hedged it around about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went to a far country. If you were a Jew, and especially a Pharisee living in those days, would you already know what Christ was talking about? want you to go over with me to Isaiah chapter 5. In Isaiah chapter 5, it starts out this way. Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved vineyard, my beloved touching his vineyard. 
My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it, gathered the stones thereof, planted it with the choicest vine, built a tower in the midst of it, made a wine press, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Um, And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could I have done more to my vineyard that I have not done? Do you think the Pharisees understood that first verse of the parable of God saying, I made a vineyard? And I mean, it's almost a direct quote from Isaiah 5. I don't think there's any question at all that the Pharisees understood what Christ was talking about, that it had to do with Israel. Now let's go to uh, um, verse 34. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandman, that they might receive the fruits of it. There's a key word in there. What's the key word? Key word is servants. If you're a Jewish Pharisee, what do you understand from the Old Testament? Let's turn to Jeremiah 26.5. Jeremiah 26.5 says this, To hearken to the words of my Servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but ye have not hearkened. And I could give you, time is going fast, I could give you three or four other verses where constantly he's talking about my servants, the prophets in the Old Testament. Do you think the Pharisees would pick that up? They should have if they were into the word. Then let's go to verse 35. The husbandman took his servant and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And if you go to Jeremiah and 1 Kings 19.10 and Matthew and Acts, all over the place, it talks over and over again how Israel took the prophets and killed them and did away with them and didn't want to listen to what they had to say. Old Testament text, too. So as Christ is going down through this parable Do you think there's any possibility that the Pharisees didn't understand what he was saying? I don't think so. If they were into the word, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Then lastly, in verse 37, it says that they, um, they'll reverence my son when I send him. And when he sent his son, they killed him. If you go to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, it talks all about the coming redeemer, the one, the son the one who's going to come for them. And he has been claiming this for himself throughout his whole ministry, that he is the Son of God. He even said, I and the Father are one. And yet, they would not believe him. They they wouldn't go by the Old Testament text that told about the coming Messiah and the Son of God, and yet they had every evidence too. And then you go on with the parable, and each verse... If you go down through this parable, each verse has a key word that you can go back and see how it's used in the Old Testament. And you know that they knew what he was talking about. And in fact, as you get down to verse 43, after they themselves have said, well, these people who have not rejected, who have rejected the son and all the prophets should be killed themselves and so on. And Jesus said, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you am given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And only after he said that did they start thinking, hmm, 
And in verse 45, what does it say? And when the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard his parable and what he said about the characters and everything, they perceived that he spoke about them. They didn't pick it up from how he told the story at the beginning because they probably weren't in the word enough to really understand that. But they should have been. And I guess that's my point is that as we study, we should start picking up on these things. There's lessons in every single verse that are lessons for us today. Time is going very quickly. I think I'm going to skip to my last point, and that's that based on the verse that we read for our scripture, that God lets nothing happen except he warns us that it's going to happen in the first place. I can think of four things specifically that are really important that happened that God warned and let people know ahead of time. Number one was the first coming of Christ. Was that an important event? How long had God been planning that? For a long, long time, right? Even before sin happened, God had been planning for that. So do you think that's something that he would let us know about, that it was going to happen? And when we go to Daniel verse or chapter 9, absolutely detailed information of when the Messiah was going to come. And what's interesting, if you go through the some of the Jewish writings of the Mishnah, which are commentaries on the scriptures and stuff like that, the Pharisees have put a, and in Christ's day and then afterwards, and even before, I suppose, they have put a curse upon Daniel 9, 24 to 27, that anybody studying those scriptures to try to find out the time of the Messiah is going to have a curse put upon them. It's really something, isn't it? God reveals to the world when his Messiah is going to come, and yet his own chosen people put a curse upon anybody studying that so that they won't know. It really shows you where we have gotten uh, as sinful human beings, doesn't it? Then what's the next great thing that was going to happen that he needed to warn his followers about? And I will bring up the great church apostasy. God could have just let things go and said nothing about any temptations that were going to come, anything that was going to happen within the church. But that's not the way God is. He wants us to be warned of things. And so, right in the middle of Daniel, in Second Thessalonians, in Revelation, he warns us that there's going to be a great apostasy coming right in the middle of his people. So that people, as they went through the ages, could start seeing that if the church was going away from the Bible, that they needed to stick with the Bible and not follow those who are going the different direction. It really shows to me how much God loves us. He doesn't leave anything to chance. Something as big as that, he would need to let us know about it so that we wouldn't be taken in by that apostasy. And so that's the second time that he has given specific scriptures aiming directly at helping us to understand what was going to happen. Then 
Another thing that happened that he let us know about that we already talked about in a minute is the coming judgment. Do you think God would just leave us completely uninformed about any coming judgment? No. He lets us know that there is a coming judgment that is based on what he set up in the Old Testament, Day of Atonement, so that we can prepare ourselves for the time when that judgment is coming. And in fact, as we know that, that is our message to give to the world, that the judgment is coming. So prepare for that. Get ready for Jesus' coming, because when the judgment is done, he will come. So that's a third major thing that he has warned us about so that we can know. Do many people in the world know about those things in the Bible? Unfortunately, not. But that's your task and my task then is to take what's in here and go out and tell those who don't know. The last thing is something that's kind of around Robin Hood's barn in a way, but something we just mentioned and that's that, remember we mentioned the, um, the way that Christ takes Old Testament things, you know, the name of Jerusalem and Zion and my people and my peculiar people and all those things, to literal Israel, and then he uses them to spiritual Israel in the New Testament times. He did that and helped us understand how there's a change from the literal to the spiritual because he knew that in the end of time, they would be making the same mistake that the Jews made, and that's still looking for literal fulfillments of some of these things when, in fact, they were going to be spiritual. So he warns us against what is happening in Christianity today, and that's that forgetting that all these lessons are for spiritual Israel, for the church, and not just for literal Israel living in Palestine. Want you to go with me to Psalms one nineteen thirty three to forty. Psalm one hundred and nineteen thirty three to forty. And this is the hope of all of us, I'm sure, or at least I'm hoping that all of us take this to heart. Because this is what God wants us to do. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. Where are his statutes? In the Bible. And I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding. How are you going to have understanding if you don't study the Bible and learn the principles involved in it? Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole, whole heart. Make me to go in the paths of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart to thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken me in thy way. You notice how many different ways he talks about the Bible, and how he describes the Bible? Establish thy word unto thy servant who is devoted to thy fear. Turn away my reproach, which I fear. Thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. 
So as we think about God's word, it's more than just reading. It's more than just words. It's lessons to learn. It's precepts to follow. It's very deep at times correlations that unless we think about, we'll miss the point entirely. But God put it in there, so he wants us to know. So my prayer is that all of us may spend more time in searching out his words so that we can know what God has told us. Our Father in heaven, as we see the different ways that you have written your word, how you have given some very easy things for the young, how you have given more complicated things for those who are older, who have studied longer, and who wish to dig deeper. There is something for everyone. And as we go on that path of studying and learning more about your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us in our understanding. Continue to be with us each day as we go from this place. Continue to bless the Sabbath hours. And for those who are staying for the potluck afterwards, we pray that you may bless the food that has been prepared for each person who is here and continue to help us in our fellowship so that we may draw closer together. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.